0: Good morning. You know, I, I I don't make a big deal about birthdays because um, you know it's no real accomplishment. I mean, if you keep breathing in and out, they come pretty regularly. <laughs> um, but I, I do have to say, if you if you um, if you involve little children, that that all of a sudden makes it uh, takes it to a different level. Um, That painting. um, This is the Bible verse that's printed on that painting. Jeremiah 3.15 Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you knowledge and understanding. You know... What you need to understand is that um, what we share here at Evergreen with, with, um, with me being pastor here, what you need to understand is that the privilege is all mine. I've pastored at other churches and other places, but I've never, never been a part of a church like this. And it is a great gift to me. So thank you. I remember actually 21 years ago today, my 40th birthday was on a Sunday as well. Church was much smaller then, and I arrived for church that day. We were meeting in Thoreau Middle School only to find everybody in the church head to toe dressed in black. (laughs) And I turned to my wife and I said, what is going on? Why is everybody wearing black? She said, are you that dense? I said, my 40th birthday? And she said, yeah, exactly. And I was like, oh, great. So, you know, the downside of social media is everybody knows your birthday, uh, but at least you're not all wearing black today, so that's something. Um, I want to teach today from not just the Gospel of John, but, but from all four Gospels in a sense, because we've come to a story. I've entitled it The Arrival of the King. We call it typically um, the triumphal entry. And usually it's a, it's a story that we tell on Palm Sunday. But because we're going through the Gospel of John, this is where we land and, and, and John really begins the final week of the life of Jesus. And it, it will take us months to finish this, um, this last week and because of the detail that John gives us. But the triumphal entry, the entry into Jerusalem on that Sunday before the Passover, followed the next day by the crucifixion, followed on Sunday by the resurrection, that triumphal entry, as we call it, is triumphal only because we know the end of the story. But I was thinking this week about the different entry points that we find in the life of Jesus. For example, his first entry, his first arrival, if you will, was a baby in a manger, um, really in the, in the stable behind an inn in a backwater town called Bethlehem. Jesus, God in the flesh, came and there was little notice. Um, shepherds, the lowest rung of society, celebrated. Angels sang, but other than, uh, other than angels at the top of the chain and, and shepherds at the bottom, Uh, very few other people even noticed. In fact, that baby wasn't very old before he was forced away from his own town because the king of that day, a king by the name of Herod, decided that he was a threat and he had to be killed. And so uh, killing a generation of babies in that town, uh, Jesus was forced into the land of Egypt with his parents only to return after that king had died. The next time we see him sort of making an arrival, we find him at the age of 12, and he comes to Jerusalem with his parents, and he goes to the temple. Well, mom and dad lose sight of him, and, and, and in, the, in the hustle and bustle of travel, uh, they leave Jerusalem and only at the end of the day to, to discover that, that he's not there. They left him at church. That's happened. So they go back and they're stunned because when they find him, he's not cowering in a corner somewhere. He's with the religious leaders. He's with the experts in the law and he's teaching them. Well, he left that day with his mother and father, probably with one of those religious leaders saying, I don't know who that kid was, but he's gonna make a great rabbi someday. Well, the next time we see him make an arrival, so to speak, is when when he walks past John the Baptist one day. And John points him out and says, behold, that's the one. This is the lamb who's going to take away the sins of the world. But even with that announcement, there were only a couple of John's disciples that had enough curiosity to follow Jesus from a distance and and he turned and said, well, can I help you? And they said, well, we were kind of wondering where you were staying. And he said these words, come and see. And they did, and they were changed forever. Listen, let me tell you something. The simplest invitation to follow Jesus is, hey, just come and see. Jesus can, can withstand our scrutiny. So to invite somebody to just come and see. That's a great, that's a great way. But, but even that arrival was fairly unheralded, if you will. Well, now we come to this one. Three years after that come and see invitation, Jesus is wrapping up his public ministry. He's basically been admitting who he is in debate and in conversation, but but he's been reluctant to promote his Messiahship with the crowd because they had some real wonky ideas about what the Messiah was going to be like. And, and Jesus was very careful not to allow his uh, ministry to get swept up in these faulty, unbiblical expectations of the Messiah. So he, he was very careful to, to not use certain titles of himself until now. And the fact that he allows himself in these passages to be called king. The fact that in these passages for the first time in his ministry, he refers to himself as Lord. You see, now the, now's the time. He's willing to take those titles, those accolades in all the fullness of their meaning. And he's willing to allow those titles to rest on him because he is king and he is Lord. Now's the time. There's another arrival. We'll talk about that in a minute, but let's let's look at this one. Because this event shows up in all four Gospels, I want to do something that I don't often do. I want to read all four Gospel accounts because I want to teach this event, but each author is writing to a different audience, and so they highlight different aspects of this event. And so in order to get the full picture of what happened this day, the four gospel writers are like four witnesses to to some scene, and they're standing in, from different angles, and they're viewing it from different perspectives, and they're telling us different parts of the story. In fact, we'll start with Matthew and read each one of these until we get to John. And when we get to John, we're going to find that even in John, John has the least amount of detail of the things that we think about when we talk about the triumphal entry, but John has some details that nobody else tells us. And so I want to read all four of these accounts. Uh, They're not very long, but I want us to look at them because this is how we're going to to really get a full picture of what happened that day in Jerusalem. The Matthew account is in Matthew chapter 21. It begins with verse 1. Matthew tells us when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with it. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. And he will send them on immediately. Now this took place so that what was spoken through the prophet would be fulfilled. Say to the daughters of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their cloaks on them and he sat on the cloaks. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Now the crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. But When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now we go to Mark. Mark chapter 11, beginning in the first verse. Mark tells us the same story with some of the same details, but here's his account. And as they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it back here. They went away and found the colt tied at the door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them just as Jesus had said, and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. And those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple area, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. All right. Now, Luke. Luke tells us this story in chapter 19, verse 28. Luke 19, 28. He says, After Jesus said these things, He was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When He approached Bethphage and Bethany near the mountain that is called Olivet, He sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, there, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent laughed and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and they threw their cloaks on the colt and Jesus on and put Jesus on it. Now as he was going, they were spreading their cloaks on the road, and as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King, the One who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And yet some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus replied, I tell you, if these stop speaking, the very stones will cry out. Now John. John doesn't tell us some of those details, but there are other details that we only know because of his writing. In John chapter 12, he tells the story beginning in verse 12. On the next day, when the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem... They took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Indeed, the king of Israel, Jesus, finding a young donkey, said on it, as it is written, Do not fear, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, Then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things for him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify about him. For this reason, also the people went to meet him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not accomplishing anything. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, there's a couple of things in John that he includes that we don't get from any of the other accounts. The first of which was that the disciples were confused. They didn't fully understand what was happening. They didn't make the connection of why Jesus was willing to take the name of Lord, why he was willing to be called king uh, as the people began to praise him. Um, They didn't understand the whole business about the cult, the the, the, the foal of a donkey. Go here, find it, bring it here. I'm going to ride it. It was only after he was glorified, meaning after he was ascended, that the Holy Spirit came 10 days after the ascension at, on the day of Pentecost. That's when the church went from about 120 total believers to over 3,000 total believers in a single day. But it was in with the coming of the Holy Spirit. Remember what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit? I'm gonna send a helper and he's gonna teach you everything you needed to know about me. Imagine if you had walked with Jesus for three years and it was only as his spirit came and took up residence in you that you began to, to look at, at the word of God. For them, it was the Old Testament. But to open up the Old Testament and all of a sudden see Jesus on every page in ways you'd never seen him before to have an understanding. Do you remember when Jesus was walking on the road to Emmaus and he, and, he, and he walked with those two disciples and they didn't recognize him, but they were asking him questions and it says that Jesus proceeded to go back to Moses and the prophets and to tell them everything they needed to know about the Messiah. And they said, wasn't our heart burning when, he, when we were listening to him teach us? after they realized who it was. Well, that's what the Holy Spirit does. He comes into our lives, and all of a sudden, He's going to show us things. He's going to help us have understanding. The Holy Spirit inspired the writers of Scripture. The Holy Spirit illumines the minds of the readers of Scripture. It was only after the Holy Spirit came that they looked back, and they said, oh, look, This verse out of Psalm 118, the verse that they were quoting when Jesus came into Jerusalem. Listen, that verse, was that that Psalm, Psalm 118, was often sung as a greeting, a welcome to pilgrims coming into Jerusalem. But when Jesus arrives, when the king comes to his royal city, all of a sudden that Psalm takes on a whole new level of meaning. It's not just a pilgrim making his way to Jerusalem for a festival. This is the king coming to his city. That quote from Zechariah 9, another obscure reference in the Old Testament. Daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming, riding on a donkey. Jesus sent them to find a donkey. Now, I, I want to talk to you about that because, um, because uh, well, let, let's walk through the outline that, I, that I've provided for you. I want you to see how the king prepares for this day. It starts with a regal authority. His preparation for that entrance into Jerusalem really had a sense of command about it. He tells the disciples, they've been in Bethany, they've had the, the, the dinner w- the night before with, uh, with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, uh, Mary anoints Jesus for his burial. The next morning, everybody knows it's time to go to Jerusalem. They're ready to go. But Jesus says, before we go, there's something we need to do. I need you to go and find this, this colt that will be in this place and bring it to me. For the only time in the Gospels, he calls himself Lord because his moment has arrived for him to demonstrate precisely who he is. This is not a hidden identity any longer. His time is now. And with a kind of authority of a king, he gives instructions so that it unfolds precisely the way it's supposed to. There's a profound symbolism here, which was appropriate because if you go back in the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets often acted out lessons that they were trying to teach by doing something symbolically. Uh, There's a story of uh, of Joshua eating the scroll of the word of God, and and, and in that story, it's it's a symbol uh, of a lesson that, that that he's trying to get across. Ezekiel with the uh, uh, with the uh, exiles in Babylon often would do something symbolic. He would he would have some sort of uh, he would act out a lesson in a sense. So in the symbolism, people would have a a way to, to remember well what they were being taught. That's what's happening here. Jesus goes, Jesus rides a new animal. It's interesting, in two of the authors, they emphasize that this was a cult that nobody had ever sat on before. If we go all the way back in the Old Testament to King Solomon, what we learn is that it was the privilege of a king to be the first person to ride a brand new beast. In other words, it was often that that animals were prepared for the king, they were reserved, no one else could ride them. That was a privilege that belonged to the king. So what's happening is, the Old Testament prophet Zechariah says you're gonna see your king coming into your city, but he's gonna be riding on a donkey. Now this is the strangest picture and, and, and for centuries, for 500 years until Jesus came, uh, the scholars couldn't, couldn't make sense of it because in their mind, the, the Messiah was a conquering general. He was a military power that would come and, 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 and relieve uh, Israel from all the oppression of, uh, of whatever power seemed to be over them at the time. And yet the prophet said, this is going to be a king who will exercise the rights that a king has He'll ride on uh, an animal that no one has ever ridden on, but it won't be a stallion. It won't be a a, a horse of war. It'll be a donkey, a sign of humility, uh, a, a picture of peace. This is going to be a different kind of king than you've ever seen before. He'll be riding a beast of burden, not one of conquest. In the ancient world, they understood that kings burdened their people But this was to be a king who would bear the burdens of his people. And here's the other part about this. There was a prophetic consciousness. This Zechariah prophecy was 500 years old. The idea of a coming king who would be rejected. He would be marked peculiarly by meekness. In fact, the Hebrew of that verse in in the Old Testament uh, describes the Messiah as one who does not resist. Here's the thing about Jesus. He never forces himself on anyone. He presents his kingliness and then he waits for you to decide. You see, that's why the best invitation that you can ever offer someone is come and see. Occasionally I have someone who will say, I just, I just, I, I don't know enough. I don't have answers to the questions that people are asking. I understand. And you know, when you're talking to somebody and you don't have all the answers, you say, listen, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But why don't you come to church with me? Why don't you come and see? Because Jesus Is Enough he has the answers. I don't have the answers. I can't tell you everything that you need to know I'm not smart enough to have all the theology wrapped up and tied with with a neat bow, but come and see Jesus presents himself as a king and then he leaves it up to us to decide well here's what happens when when he arrives This is a strange king, and he has an even stranger parade. He wasn't dressed in kingly clothes. He was dressed in a peasant shirt, I imagine. They understood that most subjects are called to die for their king, but he was a king coming to die for his subjects. He wasn't surrounded by an entourage of soldiers or military might. His court was made up of children singing Hosanna. His soldiers were carrying palm branches. How strange. Here was a king who was honored with old clothes and broken trees. It's interesting what a strange army this king had. It was an army singing words of peace. The word Hosanna that shows up in each of the Gospels. That's an interesting word because it, Hosanna is a word that literally means save us now. That's the very thing Jesus couldn't do. He couldn't save them on Palm Sunday. He couldn't save them until after he went to the cross on Good Friday. Because see what they wanted with an almost red carpet like atmosphere. He enters Jerusalem with the crowds gathered around cheering and screaming. If they'd had, if they'd had smartphones, they'd have been snapping pictures. It would have had kind of the the feeling of a celebrity arriving on the red carpet. That's what the crowd saw. But for Jesus, he understood what was happening in a different way. This was a royal king riding into his city, but but it's not the royal king that could save them. He would have to become a bloody king on on a crossly throne in order to do that. He saw beyond the garments and the that were stretched out on the road. He saw just a few days down the road when soldiers would be gambling for his clothes. He saw broken branches that had been sprayed out on the the ground in front of him. But his sights were set on another tree just a few days ahead. You see, this whole episode has a kind of pathos to it. Because Jesus is finally being recognized for who He really is. And yet for all the cheers of the crowd and all the songs of the children, this same crowd will have a very different message in just a few days. Hosanna, save us now, becomes crucify Him. Release the worst among us, a seditious insurrectionist named Barabbas, release the worst among us so that you can kill the very best among us. There is no one but God who could write such a story because it is such an odd telling of these events. You see, Jesus was a king and he stirred interest the day he arrived in Jerusalem because even like our generation today, they had a fondness for hero worship. And yet it was mostly a surface level identification. They knew his name, they knew his vocation, they knew his hometown, they knew the region where he had spent most of his time, but they never really grasped his purpose That's precisely the generation that we live in. People we cross paths with every day, they've heard of Jesus. They may know a little something about Him. They think they know more than they do. But they've never grasped the reason He came. Well, this was all too much for the Pharisees. There's two Two of the four writers that give us insight into the Pharisees during this, this time. The crowds gathered around Jesus. A celebratory atmosphere. of uh, Children dancing and singing and, and people putting down palm. You know, by the way, putting down the cloaks and the palm leaves, that was also a sign of, for royalty. It was kind of like their version of a red carpet preparing the way for him to enter. We have two, two insights into the Pharisees by the different writers, one says that at some point in this parade, Pharisees were bold enough to go up to Jesus, clearly still seated on that colt, and they said, this is not okay! Stop all these people! Make them stop proclaiming you as king! And Jesus gives a great answer. He says it wouldn't do any good. Even if they stopped, the very rocks themselves would cry out. You see, when the king comes, it's not the job of the rocks to announce his coming. That's our job. But if we don't do our job, creation itself will rise up and stand in the gap because even inanimate creation understands who the king is, the one who spoke creation into existence by the power of his words. He said it wouldn't do any good. You could tell them all to stop, and the rocks themselves would cry out. My favorite insight into the, into, the, into the Pharisees comes from John. I don't know who overheard this. In my mind, there are some Pharisees that are watching this parade as it goes by. They've probably already been rebuked by Jesus saying the rocks would cry out even if we could stop this parade. And they huddle up together and they're, they're mad at each other. They were constantly at each other's throats over this Jesus business. And one of them goes, do you see now? Nothing we've done has made a difference. The whole world is following after him. It must have felt that way because they were, they were definitely on the outside of the party looking in. let me tell you something the day is coming when the whole world is going to follow after him you see here's the thing those pharisees they were they were not bad people as far as their behavior they were morally upright they were they were diligent in their determination to be righteous and godly now now, they got lost in their own abilities. They got prideful that they were sufficient enough that, that God couldn't get along without them. But by and large, they weren't bad people. They weren't bank robbers or, 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 or you know, street thieves. But you see, the king was coming. And when the king comes, there are only two choices. You bow the knee. And acknowledge that he's the king. Or you join a rebellion. And that's what they've done. They've decided that Jesus can't be the king. They won't have it. They were a part of a rebellion. And they were frustrated because the tide of the day seemed to be moving against them it would turn quickly enough and there would be a smugness in just a few days that they had pulled off this overthrow that they had planned. Here's the thing about these, these four stories that are given to us. This event is recorded in all four Gospels because... It's designed to teach us a couple of things that I think we miss. Let me give you let me give you my takeaways. Two, two takeaways from this these stories of, of of the triumphal entry. We usually celebrate this on Palm Sunday and and we talk about it in terms of leading to the cross and, and it's a, a day that we we let children parade into church carrying palm branches. And, and we do those kinds of things. But there are a couple of takeaways from this, uh, from this story that I think we don't often walk away with. And I, I want to I help you grab onto these today because the more time I've spent with this passage, the more clearly I can see a couple of things that, that I really hadn't noticed in general over the years. Number one, I want you to see that um, there's a lesson here about how precise Jesus is to live by the Word of God. Uh, I think it's easy to, to miss this lesson because for most of the, the life of Jesus, it's almost like those Old Testament prophecies sort of just naturally unfolded in, in the life of Jesus. Um, his 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 birth in Bethlehem, for example, that's not something that he um, had human impact on. He was just born where he was born, even though the prophets had said. The prophet Micah says he'll be born in Bethlehem. So there are some messianic prophecies that simply were fulfilled as as the Father orchestrated all those events. But this is an instance where Jesus is very self conscious about making sure that he does everything precisely according to the Word of God. For example, Zechariah 9.9 about the cult. He doesn't just stroll into Jerusalem as though he could do it any way he wanted. There was a plan. There uh, There was a divine unfolding drama here. And Jesus was careful uh, to be precise about how he lived according to the Word of God. Now, think about this. Let's flash back all the way to the Old Testament. Um, there are writers that have left us long books. But um, Elijah, while he never left us any writings, Elijah is regularly recognized as the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. In the book of Kings, we find that event where Elijah has a challenge with more than 800 false prophets, prophets of the the false god Baal. And the challenge is this, they will construct an an altar and it will have everything necessary to offer a sacrifice, everything except one important element, it won't have the fire. So they're gonna build an altar, they're gonna arrange it just so, they're gonna kill the animal, they're gonna put it out, everything is gonna be ready for a sacrifice. Now here's the challenge, we're going to pray to our separate gods and whichever God answers by fire will be the true God in Israel. Prophets of Baal say, okay, we've got this. So they set up this altar. Everything is, is set just right. And Elijah goes and sits down under a tree. And he proceeds to watch as the entire day unfolds with these 800 prophets of Baal They're dancing, they're singing, they're chanting, they're praying, they're cutting themselves, bleeding on the sacrifice as though they could appease their God to to act on their behalf. The day just goes on, they get more frantic, they dance harder, they sing louder, they scream, they bleed. With Moses, I mean with Elijah sitting over under a tree, mocking them the whole time. Maybe he's gone to the latrine. That's Actually, in the Hebrew, maybe he's taking a nap. maybe you need to be louder he can't hear you. mocks them all day long. At the end of the day, still a sacrifice, still no fire. Elijah gets up and it's his turn and he comes and he puts it back in order and makes sure it's just right, but then he he does extra he he douses it with water he makes it impossible to burn. But there's an interesting little phrase right before he prays and God responds by (laughs) dropping fire out of the sky and consuming this sacrifice with all the soaked wood, all the things that wouldn't catch fire. God's fire just consumed it. But there's a little phrase in that story that you need to know. It says that when Elijah stepped up, to the the sacrifice that it was just at the time of the evening sacrifices. Now see, all the way through the Bible, there are hints about how the people that God has honored the most are people that have been diligent and precise about living by the word of God. You see, it's not okay for you to be so enthusiastic, so, uh, so serious about, about being a Christian that you can do it any way you want to. Your increased enthusiasm doesn't make up for your lack of concern with the way God has designed life to happen. If Elijah was that careful about doing everything in a way that matched the Word of God so that God would receive the glory. If Jesus was that careful about doing everything according to the Word of God so that God would always be the one to receive glory. If Elijah and Jesus are that serious about following the Word of God, there's got to be a lesson there for the rest of us. You see, the, the Bible cannot be that thing you hunt for on Sunday mornings, so you can carry it to church, Where did I put it? Where did I leave it? The Word of God has got to be our companion it 's got to be our daily friend it 's got to be it 's got to be a word that 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 comes to us fresh every day because as we know the Word of God, as we read it, as we memorize it, as we study it, as we understand it, as we grasp it, what happens is we become more precise about living our lives in the way that God has designed for us to live them. We've been trying to do electronic stuff at my house. I know, yeah, like you're always available we're trying to get you know trying to get data transferred from one device to another and and all this kind of stuff. Listen, it doesn't matter how enthusiastic you are about having a new device. I'm just old enough that I have to go back and go, okay, what's the manual say? Because there's a right way and a wrong way to get things done. And it's not passion or 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 energy or enthusiasm that settles the issue, it's whether or not you know how to do it according to its design. That's what the Word of God is for us. It's a manual on how you and I were designed to operate. We think we know ourselves pretty well. Actually what I discover is the more I get into the Word of God, the more I realize that the Word of God knows me better than I know myself. And if I can figure out how to live my life by getting it from the Word of God, I'm always better off than me just bullying forward thinking that I can just just figure it out as I go. Jesus was precise in His approach to the Word of God. We need that takeaway. The Bible has to be our companion. Frankly, we can't live in the crazy era in which we live, if we can't figure out what the Bible has to say about the great issues and the great struggles of our generation. Is your Bible your companion or is it just an accessory that you bring to church? That's the first takeaway. Here's the second takeaway. Jesus doesn't enter Jerusalem as a conqueror. Actually, there will be a conqueror that will show up in just a generation or so. A Roman emperor will show up in about 68 AD and by 70 AD he will have destroyed Jerusalem. Jesus didn't come to Jerusalem as a conqueror. What's fascinating to me is Jesus came to Jerusalem as king. He didn't debate it, he didn't argue it, he didn't try and make the case. He simply stated it because it was true. He was the king, he had authority to be there as king. He didn't ask permission. He didn't go to the, to, to the governmental authorities and say, hey, I, I want to try and start this movement. He didn't go to the Pharisees and, and say, hey, can we work something out so that we, we can get along? Jesus rode into that city on that day because he was king. And there wasn't anything that he had to say about it. He, he, wasn't, he didn't come in to take over the city. The city was already his. I think that's important for this reason. We live in a generation where the church in this country, more so than in other places that I've traveled around the world, the church in this country is anemic, it's weak, and it's afraid because we've bought into the lie that there's somebody else in charge. We've treated the church in general in this country as a safe haven. We we gather in our churches and we sort of keep the world out there. And and, and we, we come together and we try and feel safe for a few minutes. We've got to change the way we look at the world in which we live. We're not trying to take over somebody else's territory. Our God rules here. Jesus is the king. We are representatives of the king. Paul tells us he's made us ministers of reconciliation, pleading with men to be reconciled to God. We've gotta quit running and hiding in the shadows as though we do wanna keep a little profile so that nobody will notice us. If they don't take notice of us, maybe they'll leave us alone and we can just do church quietly and on the sly. We've gotta get past that. Too many churches have caved to the culture got rainbow flags hanging over the front doors they, they, they they've signed up for whatever the culture says is the current fad or trend we've got to be a people who say this land this world this universe belongs to my god and i won't back away from anyone who tries to take ground from him you're either in service to the king or you're a part of a rebellion Those are the choices that we have. There are too many churches that have become part of the rebellion simply because they're afraid to serve the king. It might cost us something. It might be difficult. People might not like us. Folks, we gotta get past that. You see, here's the deal. He came as a baby in a manger. He came as a 12-year-old to the temple. He came as the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. He came into Jerusalem as a king. But let me tell you something. There's one more arrival on the agenda. And when He comes back this time, it won't be obscure, won't be hidden, it won't be on the back side of nowhere. When he comes back this time, everybody's going to know. And the Bible tells us that when that happens, there's no more rebellion. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So if that's what's ahead of us, then what do we care what the rebellion thinks about the servants of the king. The king is coming. We'll be vindicated when the king comes. We leave this place charged up, renewed, revived, awakened, built up, strengthened, made courageous we come into this place not to hide from the world we come into this place to be ready to go out into the world because we are representatives of the king and this is the king's world so which side are you on let me ask you this what's my favorite sport Duh. What college football team do I root for? You know my favorite sport, and you know the college football team I root for, because it just oozes out of me. I mean, it's just who I am. How is it possible that the Church of Jesus Christ lives in a way that people know our hobbies, they know our sports affiliations. They know, they know what foods we like. And yet they don't know we're followers of Jesus. Shouldn't that be something that sort of oozes out of us as well? What if you said in a conversation, Jesus ought to be such a natural part of our conversation. What if you said in a conversation, man, yesterday was a hard day for me. Uh, things that worked didn't go well, and, and I just just had some issues. and I've got, got a pain in my back and got some stuff. But, but you know what? Jesus is with me every step that I take. What if you just said something like that? You know how that would catch people's attention? They're used to everybody complaining. What they're not used to is anybody acknowledging that there's a king who's in charge, and he makes my life livable. He makes my, my work doable. He makes my day survivable. What if they knew as much about the Jesus in us as they know about all the, the side hobbies that, we, that we're a part of? We are representatives of the king and we live in territory that belongs to the king. Now, there's a lot of rebels here. There's, there's a rebellion going on But we can't lose sight of the fact that the rebels don't own this world this belongs to the king jesus didn't go take jerusalem it was already his he just acted like he had authority oh wait a minute turns out a few days are going to go by he's going to die he's going to come back to life he's going to Spend 40 more days with his disciples, and then just before he's ascended, he's going to tell them this. Guess what? Every authority has been given to me, and I am going to give it to you. Let us be who we are. We are the followers of the king. And his triumphal entry into Jerusalem was a hint of the triumphal arrival of what's coming sooner rather than later. Let us be that people. If you don't know Jesus Christ, man, that is the absolute starting place. I don't care if you're a member of of 18 churches, I don't care if you've got a perfect attendance pin in Sunday school for the last 40 years, do you know Jesus Christ personally? That's the only question that's gonna be asked of you in the last day. Let us introduce you to Jesus. Are you doing this Christian faith shoulder to shoulder with the family? Let us tell you how you can be a part of Evergreen. Are you walking with your master with courage and confidence and boldness because of who he is and who we are in relation to him? If not, man, make your way right here to this sacred space and just drop to your knees and say, Lord, I'm yours. Top to bottom, start to finish, I'm yours. And I'm ready. I'm ready to get into the game. I'm ready to be a part of the fight. I'm ready to be used however you want me to be used. I'm tired of hiding, hoping nobody notices me. I want to be a follower of the King. Today's the day. We go out from this place We're not ending church, we're starting church. To know Jesus, to be a part of a church family, people who stand shoulder to shoulder, who learn how to walk this walk alongside you, to be serious about following him. Whatever you need to do, today's the day. Our pastors are gonna be right here. There's plenty of space here for you to come pray. You take the hand of somebody that's important to you and you say, listen, will you go pray with me? So I'm nervous about walking in front of this whole room of people. Listen, every single person in this room is rooting for you. They will absolutely be on your side. You come do business with Jesus. This is who we are. And we are leaving this place to go back out into the world, but we are not afraid. Because they can do nothing to us. We live in the authority and the power of our King. Father, thank you so much. Thank you for the reality that Jesus is king. That he rode that donkey into Jerusalem announcing not only that he was king, but that he was a different kind of king than anybody had ever dreamed about. Father, he's a king who died for us instead of asking us to die for him. He's a king who carries our burdens instead of burdening us. We're so used to the world where politicians live by different rules than the people they control. But Father, You you are a King that, that treats us better than we could ever have hoped. We will not be silent. We will not be afraid. We will not be left out. We will engage the culture. We will take the fight to them. We will advance. Because we can do nothing else. Fill us with your spirit. Give us courage, boldness in our speech. Father, help your word to become precious to us. Make it our everyday companion. Let us find out who we are by spending time in your word. Father, raise up a mighty army. Because we're tired of living in the world the way it is. We pray for revival in your church. We pray for spiritual awakening in this land. Father, we don't know the timetable for last days. But I'm asking that if it be your will, you give us one more great awakening. that Father as as your eyes roam to and fro across the earth seeking those whose hearts are completely yours you will settle on a place called Evergreen and find here a people determined to be the people of God in this generation Jesus chasers to the very end this is our prayer we pray in your name Amen.